0: Started With the show, we'd like to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you have derived any value whatsoever from Always Take Notes, please consider supporting us there. It will help us keep the podcast going for a long time yet.
1: Our latest Patreon is Tilda Mallinson. Tilda's a youngish 25 year old multimedia journalist, particularly interested in humanitarian news and migration. Prior to entering the industry, she was a humanitarian worker in South Africa and French refugee camps for two years. And she's trained or worked at the FT and the Evening Standard. Tilda, we're really grateful for your support and thank you for listening.
0: As previously advertised, if you support us on Patreon, you can get a package of successful magazine pictures from myself, Simon, and previous co-hosts and friends of the show. But Simon's going to tell you a little bit more about our new, rewards which are very exciting.
1: So starting in 2021 we've created a new tier of rewards for our most generous Patreons. These are a series of mini episodes which we've asked past guests on the show to record. We've asked them three questions. It's the same questions for everyone but you'll have to look to see what they are and we've got this really fantastic uh, set of very intimate tapes that have come in and we're going to be putting out one of these mini episodes every two weeks for the top tier on Patreon. And to give you a taste here is a little snippet of the first first. first one, which is with historian Peter Frankopan. I think when you're a writer or a thinker or an academic, there's never really an off button. You never get to go home and switch off. There's never a weekend when you can forget what you're working on. And that feeling guilty is completely normal. I wish somebody had told me that early on. I'd also say that I wish I'd been given advice in the first place. No one ever took me to one side and told me what lay ahead, the good and the bad, uh, and I wish I'd been told that that was normal as well. So now I'm a little bit higher up.
0: Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to Shirin Kale, a feature writer.
1: We spoke to Shirin about her career change into journalism, her career trajectory from Vice to The Guardian and other publications, and her coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it.
0: Welcome, Shirin, to Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Could we get started by talking about your entry into journalism? Because you changed careers. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I career changed into journalism. um, And I think that my entry into journalism is probably one of the most torturous entries into journalism that you'd be able to find, really. Um, I often get asked by people, how do you get into journalism? And my answer is, like, nothing like how I did it, hopefully. Um, so I kind of always knew I wanted to be a journalist, um, but I graduated in two thousand and eleven, um, like peak financial crisis, and I think I didn't really even know how to begin to go about being a journalist. I my whole family are scientists. Um, I I didn't have any contacts in that industry or any sort of understanding of how to even begin to get work experience at a publication. Um, and I, I, I think I just kind of felt like the whole world of journalism just looked far too overwhelming. Um, and I also didn't do any student journalism at university. So <laughs> I, I felt like I kind of felt at the age of sort of 21, 22 that I'd already missed that boat because I hadn't done all the things that people who want to be journalists do, which is, you know, like for my university newspaper and all that stuff. Um, so I um, ended up working um, in public affairs. Um, which is basically corporate lobbying um, and a bit of comms as well. Um, I worked for like a variety of different public affairs and corporate comms companies um, for about probably uh, three or four years in total. Um, And I did not like it very much. Um, But I, I don't know, I've kind of thought about why I did this when I, you know, why I stayed in it for so many years when I really didn't enjoy it. And I think I was always one of those quite like type a high achieving really academic kind of bookish kids at school and then i went to university and i was very focused on doing well and getting a good degree and i think i was just so exhausted by the whole like however many years of academia that i kind of just wanted to have a bit of a break from it all so i kind of it really enjoyed just living in london and being in my 20s and like going on these crazy nights out the whole time and, and not really being very good at my job but not really being too bothered about that either um And then I, so I was working in this very corporate job um, and I wasn't very good at it, (laughs) if I'm being honest with you. Like, I don't think any, I I don't think my bosses would really have anything particularly glowing to say about my commitment to the company. I used to, um, I used to just go to meetings and just feel like sort of a big sense of crushing hopelessness. Like, I'd be sitting in this meeting and thinking, oh God, I hate this. (laughs) And like, (laughs) I really hate this. (laughs) And, you know, I used to have these quite, um, like really quite morbid thoughts actually that if a bomb dropped on this building like it wouldn't mean anything because we're not doing anything worthwhile in here and just like sort of really crushingly dark thoughts about my role in the world were
1: were you sharon were you lobbying for like really terrible people or just for sort of just banal corporations like can you can you give us any 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 intel on what exactly you were doing
2: i would say like medium evil um so (laughs) 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 um like mcdonald's doodle brands that we all use but we know like deep
1: down are not good
2: for the world Um...
1: But, but not like arms and tobacco
2: uh no I mean my first ever when, when I was on a graduate scheme one of our one of my clients was a tobacco firm um but I was only there for like six months and I definitely didn't you know like grease up any ministers of you know African countries in order to get them to like accept looser tobacco regulations like nothing that sinister um but I uh yeah I basically just really really hated what I was doing and I Kind of as a creative outlet, I started a blog, um, which is why I have quite a weird Twitter handle that everyone always asks me about. um, Because my blog was called The Dawson Years. And um, it was um, a blog basically about what I was doing at that point in my life, which was um, going out clubbing a lot (laughs) and not much else. So I started writing about nightlife, um, music, that sort of thing. But I was in a very corporate environment. I mean, like, you know. That's a hundred percent if my bosses had ever found out what I was doing I'd have been fired so um I started writing it anonymously um and I was kind of doing that like on the side for maybe two years when I was at my um my old company and um off the back of that I got approached by um the editor of like a local um publication that was based in Dulston at the time Um, His name is Mark Wilding and um, the publication isn't around anymore, but he really encouraged me to consider pitching to Vice um, because he was like, you know, I really like your stuff. I think you've got a good tone of voice. I think it's quite vicey. And so I pitched um, maybe two or three articles. So it's such a long anecdote. I told you it was pretty torturous. Quite Uh, all right. (laughs) (laughs) I pitched. I pitched a few articles to Vice I think the first article I ever wrote for them was basically about um when I was uh, doing my master's in London and working as a shots girl in the West End um and basically about what that was like um and I probably wrote maybe five pieces for them over the course of two years um I had the most atrocious hit rate in terms of my pitches actually down anywhere um and then uh in 2000 and this, this would be
1: headline I worked as a shot girl right that's yeah uh, yeah yeah. Okay. yeah
2: you can um you can
0: Is Simon googling that furiously now <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah um yeah so I I've, I basically wrote that piece I worked as a shot girl in the west end of London and I got a bit more work off the back of that for them but I mean really not much like a few articles and then in 2015 I basically had what can only really be described as a sort of (laughs) quarter life crisis I think I was 26 and I just realized that I really hated my job and was also incredibly mediocre at it um and I did I did really want to be a journalist and I would quite like to try giving that a shot before you know I got really too old to sort of go into a new career um And I literally had no contacts pretty much in journalism apart from my editor at Vice. So I emailed her. um, Her name's Amelia Abraham. And I said, I don't suppose you've got any internships going, do you? Um, I'd actually, in sort of quite a fit of self-destructive peak, had already handed in my notice at work before I sent this email. (laughs) Because I thought that if I made it so that I had to leave, I would really force myself to actually try and career change. Um, So um, I emailed her and they happened to have an internship at Vice going, which is just staggering good luck that I can't even really believe to this day um and it was a paid internship um which uh, I know is sort of uh, vanishingly rare these days in journalism um it was I think it was paid about 250 pounds a week something like that which was kind of enough to cover my basic life expenses and so yeah I went into vice as an intern at the age of 26 and um the other intern on my desk thought that I was his boss because (laughs) I was just so much older than everyone in the office I think I think I was like the oldest person on the editorial desk at that point and I was also the most junior um but I think because I we we recently interviewed
0: um Phoebe Hurst and I think the average age of staff advice
2: is 27 yeah yeah. They've, they, they,
1: they've got old, basically.
2: Yeah, no one's really left. Everyone's just aging up a bit. Phoebe actually sat next to me when I was an intern, so she was very nice to me, far nicer than she should have been. Um And I, I think because I was so just grateful to be there and so appreciative and I knew how lucky I was to have even secured that paid internship, given that I had basically no experience, I just really worked as hard as I possibly could. And I think because I had worked in pretty... Intense um, private sector companies for about four years. So, although I didn't enjoy my job, it taught me like the fundamentals of how to do a job well. So, you know, answer emails, like read the email properly, try and figure stuff out on your own before you ask someone to tell you how to do it. You know, like say yes to work, don't say no to it. All those sort of things actually made me quite a good intern. Um, and so, I did the internship there for three months. Got like a ton of cuttings, like a ton of experience. It was um, such. It was just such a great baptism of fire and then i um and then i was freelance for about a month and then I, I saw a job on twitter um <laughs> Darius and confused um magazine and i went there as a staff writer um on a very low salary uh, writing news articles for the website um and i was there for not a long time i was only there for 3 months um, and then Vice offered me a job as a staff writer um, on the now Defunt, um Vertical Broadly, which is the women's platform. And so um, I was sort of uh, poached to back to Vice by my editor, Zane, uh, who's been like a really amazing mentor to me in my career. And then I stayed at Vice for three years and I left uh, Vice about a year and a half ago to do freelance. So that is my torturous path into journalism that I hope no one ever tries to replicate because it was just a very long and involved process.
1: Thank you so much for telling us that. I think it was um, fascinating and, and I think very helpful to people actually to hear how these, how these things go. How did you kind of go about learning the tricks of the trade in terms of pitching, reporting, stuff like that? Was that very much on the job? I mean, you didn't, you never did any, any formal training or anything like that.
2: No, I've never done any sort of journalistic training. I I did consider doing um, the Masters at City that everyone seems to do that has well-paid jobs now in journalism, but um, I just couldn't really afford to do the Masters. Um, I learned, honestly, just on the job. Um, I think I'm very fortunate, though, in that I was able to get into a staff job pretty early in my career. Um, And I think it's so difficult when you're young and you're starting out in journalism now if you don't have a staff job because like honestly editors don't really want to work with you for very inexperience they're not really going to take the time to like show you how to do the job whereas if you're in-house people will be much more understanding and willing to show you what you're doing wrong um yeah I learned it on the job I one of the really sort of um one of the sort of really good things that I learned actually first days where I was writing um news articles for the website and I mean I'll be doing about three a day. Um, was how to just like churn out copy really, really fast, make it accurate, make it timely, how to spot a trending news story. Um, and then one of the things that I learned advice pretty quickly was how to get people to speak to you quickly, which is something that um, you ba- I basically learned through trial and error. Um, and it was like, right, well, if I, pepper guns oh, what are your takeaways um like just keep looking until you find someone <laughs> like there's not really any magic to it just like <laughs> dogged <yeah, persistence. laughs> just like keep going and be annoying and ask all your friends to help you and just be that irritating person who's like I think I asked my ex-boyfriend to put me in touch with his brother at one point when I was at Vice. like as an intern because I was so desperate to find a case study and I mean we weren't even on speaking terms at the time so <laughs> that was <laughs> indicative of how willing I was to try and find that case study um yeah I think basically just learning on the job really uh I mean some things you learn quite brutally like dictaphones I mean I've like I'm I'm pretty sure I had to redo an entire interview with someone when I was an intern so I didn't know how to work the dictaphone properly so
1: everyone everyone has that story I think everyone has that experience (laughs) at some point in their career
2: yeah I can still feel like the hot panic like washing over me as I realized (laughs) Um, but yeah, I learned on the job and I think actually you can learn on the job, but I think I was quite privileged in that I was able to go into a staff role where I had quite patient mentors who were willing to kind of teach me those ropes. That's a
0: real theme of the of the podcast, particularly in journalism, is the, the value of an editor who will sit down with you and explain, hopefully in a nice way, why your copy is shit. <laughs> um, you mentioned as an intern and in your first staff job at Dazed, um, in not being very sort of well paid, it was enough to cover your expenses. How did you make ends meet? Did you take another job, a sort of part-time job on top of that?
2: So um, I, I was actually able to kind of survive on the money that they were paying me at Vice. I mean, I, I wasn't particularly well-paid in my old job in the corporate world, but I was on like a decent-ish salary. So I had a little bit of savings, and not much, like maybe a few grand. And I... I mean, Vice was paying me, I think, like maybe £1,500 a month, maybe a bit less, maybe 1400 when I was an intern, which is enough to basically just about survive if you don't do anything fun. Um, and then when I was uh, Days, they paid me 18 grand a year, which is also just about enough money to survive um, if you don't do anything fun or eat out ever um but when I was at days because I'd already been an intern at vice um, I was also freelancing on the side for vice already at that point so I I would tend to spend most weekends writing freelance articles for vice to supplement my income and that was kind of quite a big theme for me in the first couple of years of my career was basically working a lot around my job in order to kind of top up my salary to a livable wage so um I think like when I, I think my starting salary at Vice as a starfighter was 24k which was 6k more than I was at today's so it's just like felt like loads more money um and it was uh but it, it's also not a ton of money and it's quite hard to live in London on a, that salary it's relatively low um so I used to I mean one of the good things about Vice is that they were quite relaxed about people freelancing um, so I always pretty much freelanced. I would wake up early before work and maybe do like an hour or two of work before I went into the office, because Vice also starts at 10am. So you've got a bit of time in the morning to do a bit of work if you get up at like seven. Um, and I worked most weekends and that was kind of a theme for me for most of my time at Vice was kind of freelancing around my job, um, which I don't think is a particularly sustainable thing to do. And I definitely don't recommend it as a long-term strategy, but for me, It felt necessary, I think, because I've always felt like I was catching up in my career. um, And I felt like I had quite a lot of catching up to do quite fast. And so I didn't really mind spending those weekends working because... I'd spent the last six years basically doing not much. Um, and there's only so many nights out you can go on in London for you that boards. So I was quite happy to just be staying in and like focusing on my career for a change.
1: And where in the kind of journey and evolution of Vice were you when you were this is something that came up when we spoke to Phoebe as well, but how you know there was this sort of period around twenty fifteen when Vice and other digital media sites had uh, a lot of resources, a lot of venture capital income, a lot of kind of hype attached to them. And that, that that has changed somewhat in in years that followed. Were you conscious of kind of the the changing fortunes of the outlet as well while you were there?
2: Um, yes, uh, in a word. Um, I want to like emphasise that Vice gave me my career and I'm so incredibly grateful to them for that. Um, and particularly to Zing, my old editor, and Jamie as well, uh, Clifton, Um, because I, what they are so superb at doing is taking young writers who don't have contacts, um, and networks and, and giving them a platform and a voice and a space. And I think that they treated me like really, really well. Um, and I'm really appreciative of that. So I really don't think I'd be a journalist if they hadn't kind of swooped me from (laughs) middling corporate obscurity. Um, but the problem while I was at Vice, one of the sort of things that you couldn't fail to notice was that the company was just lurching from what it, it felt like one sort of crisis to another. Um, and that wasn't on our editorial team. That these, these were decisions that were like way, way, way above us. Um, and this was kind of a corporate change of strategy that was coming from the US. So um, I kind of arrived... 2015 was like tail end of old vice it was sort of still the glory days um I think there was like a very lavish Christmas party that Craig David played at when I was an intern (laughs) so it was like you know the kind of goods the good times um and then 2016 was when I kind of started there as, as a proper sort of salaried member of the editorial team and I everything was kind of relatively fine for about a year and then there was this sort of famous pivot to video that happened um, I think in 2017 um, I actually received that email saying we're pivoting to video Um, which I didn't realize was going to be like quite a sort of defining moment in new media history but when I watched the session they actually kind of reference it so (laughs) I was on I was in in on a little bit of history (laughs) Um, and they laid off quite a lot of really talented journalists um, friends of mine um they shut they shut down a few verticals uh by sports um they shut down motherboards in the UK thump um and a lot of really talented and great people lost their jobs um and that kind of tend that sort of carried on happening while I was there for the next couple of years and if I'm being honest with you that's kind of the reason that I left um because I think in the I was at Vice in total for about three and a half years if you count when I was an intern and I think in that time I went through four rounds of redundancies um it was sort of like maybe not me personally but the editorial team or the UK office was going through those redundancies and it was starting to affect my mental well-being because I, I really did feel like I didn't know if I was going to have a job in a month or six months or a year and I think most people would who were you know on my team at the same time would say that it did affect them um and although we got lots of sort of lovely reassuring things from our UK bosses I, I felt personally that the decisions would be made in the US um, so I, th- those words of reassurance didn't mean as much to me as they might have done to other people because I, I kind of felt like at some point some sort of person wearing a plaid shirt in a US boardroom might possibly lay me off. And That's quite sad, actually, because I really loved working at Vice and I really loved my team and I I have a really amazing relationship with my editor, Zin, and she's like a good friend of mine now. And I probably would have stayed there, were it not for that, because I, yeah, I just had the most amazing supportive boss ever in her and she always pushed me to kind of achieve what I wanted to achieve and she always kind of backed me and the editorial team there is honestly lovely. People are so kind and talented and supportive, Um, but I found the uncertainty with like with regards to whether or not there was going to be another round of layoffs was just a bit too much for me um and so I started freelancing for the Guardian basically as a way to kind of build up a safety net so that if if I got laid off in the future I would be able to get freelance work and be able to pay my bills and stuff like that um but then because I was doing that so much I felt like I, I kind of got to a point where I had a fork in the road and it was like do I want to continue freelancing because it's I'm I'm now making almost as much money from my job as I am from freelancing or do I want to stay at Vice and I think it was kind of a really difficult decision for me because I actually really enjoyed working in an office with people and I'm, I'm not naturally a freelancer I think I actually quite like being in an office but in the end I decided to go freelance. Um could we? You
0: sent um your piece about s- sort of stag doos that end in um sort of disaster in a very literal sense, and you know men losing their lives. Um, you described that to us as a sort of turning point. In in what way was it a turning point for you?
2: So that piece was a turning point for me because it was um the first feature I ever wrote for the Guardian. It was actually for the Observer magazine. Um, but it was the f- it was like the first feature that I ever wrote that got like a really strong response online um a lot of people read it and I felt like that opened a lot of doors for me in terms of my career later on in terms of being able to pitch to the Guardian I think that they were much more receptive to my pictures after that um as is always the case when you like you've got a new untested writer you know it's you have to kind of knock on the door a few times before it opens um and so yeah that that piece I think did kind of really start everything for me and what was funny is I remember the piece came out and I was actually um on a flight to New York with my, um, with thing, my editor, because we were going out to the US office, um, to meet some of our colleagues in the Vice Brooklyn office, and I think I posted it on Twitter, and then obviously got on the flight, and then the flight landed, and my, my, like, my Twitter just, like, exploded, there were so many notifications, I've never seen anything like that in my life, um, and I was like, oh, okay, this piece has, like, really struck a chord, and then I just had, like, I think for the, like, two or three months after that, I just had people like coming out to me like oh I read this article I mean the the article is about men who die on their stag do's and like probably the weirdest like endorsement of that article was someone who said to me that they were on a stag do where they started like climbing a roof and doing something stupid and then someone said no no wait remember that article so they all got off the roof <laughs> so, so, so I, I think I definitely saved a few lives though my journalism um
0: but yeah, so. This, what a change from your, your previous job where you felt you were making a difference.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I feel like I had a lot of bad karma to kind of overcome, but that's definitely like credit in the bank. Um, so yeah, so that I, I guess I've chosen that article because it kind of it, it opened the door for me that kind of led me to where I am now in terms of writing fairly regularly for The Guardian and sort of being a freelance journalist.
1: Could we, um, I wanted to ask you loads of really specific technical questions about features writing, but just before we go into that sort of geekiness, um, can we talk a bit about just how your professional slate works now? Like how many pieces do you have on the go at one stage? Who You, you, you sent this great piece for Wired to us as well. Like how does your, your kind of working life work in terms of, yeah, the number of things you're working on, the schedule, the turnaround times, that sort of thing?
2: Um, so I, am on a retainer for the guardian, so I'm contracted to work, as, uh, to write a certain amount of words a year for, um, 2 which I'm very fortunate to have. Um, and I probably wouldn't have left my old job had I not been off at that because, um, it's, it's difficult as a freelance writer to kind of manage cash flow. Um, and having that sort of guaranteed income is something that I'm like unbelievably grateful for. Um, and so I, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I, I write like a certain amount of features for them, um, a year, uh, it normally ends up, oh, I I don't even know exactly how many years, it normally ends up being about maybe 50, something like that, and then... How about
1: 50, five, five zero.
2: Uh, it depends how long they are, maybe a bit less, last year it was probably about that, but I mean, don't quote me on that, <laughs> I can't remember, probably be way less, um, so I, i I kind of prioritise, um, all of the Guardian work because they are basically my main employer, um, so... And and they're also really super lovely and really kind of reasonable and kind with me. So I've got um, a really amazing editor there, um, who's uh, her name's Tara Cartwright, who's like the head of um, features and the executive editor now, I think as well. Um, but then the GT desk will kind of uh, they'll say, hey, Sharon, can you can you work on this piece? Um, and I have to say that they are, like, genuinely some of the loveliest people to work with. Um, I uh, I have to, like, I have, I have to say that I'm just very grateful for that. Um, and they always make sure they pay me on time. Um, so I will, um, yeah, I, I kind of I, I write for them. Mostly I'll be writing for Jenny Stevens, who's my editor there, who basically kind of brought me into The Guardian and, and sort of really kind of, um, I guess, like, kind of plucked me from Vice. I, I used to pitch to her a lot when I was at Vice and she was always super supportive and really pushed my ideas through um so yeah so if like Jenny or any of my editors at the Guardian ask me to do something I will normally kind of drop that um drop what I'm doing and kind of prioritize that because they're kind of my main employer and then I fit my other freelance work around that so um how many pieces do I have right now I have uh right now I have about four, four or five pieces on the go um but one of them's a long read so it's, it's well two of them are long reads actually so they're a bit chunkier um but a normal kind of slate for me, I'll probably have maybe five pieces that I'm kind of working on in some capacity or like need to pick up at some point, but some of them will be like really, really short um, and others will be like, you know, much longer and, and bigger. Um, and then I I tend to write, I tend to kind of pitch around that if I have the capacity or there's an idea that I really want to do um, that, you know, I haven't been commissioned on. Um, but most of, I have to say that most of the work that I do most of my commissions aren't my ideas and I think it's really important for me to say that because writers tend to get like all the glory and all the praise and they like execute an idea but actually most of the time when I'm writing a feature I've been asked to do that by my editors at the Guardian or my editors elsewhere um and so it's more of a case of them coming to me and saying hey can you like turn around this feature can you do it for next Wednesday or whatever and I'm like yeah that's fine and then I, I kind of just like get on with it um I always like have this sort of vague idea that i'm gonna like sit down and like work up some pictures and then like life always gets in the way but i have a kind of word document that i just dump thoughts into um and when i get a minute i kind of think about how i could develop them into like bigger pictures or like longer projects um and yeah that's kind of like the nitty-gritty of how i do my job
0: i have a document as well where i just write what i want to you know ideas for pieces and i found it the other day and i just written it naked attraction you know that channel four show And I have no idea what that was in reference to, but at one point I wanted to write about
2: Naked Attraction. Um, In terms of your contact, I'm, like, fascinated by Naked Attraction, though. (laughs) Like, I have no idea how you would persuade people to appear on that show. No, neither. Um,
0: (laughs) In terms of your relationships with editors at other publications, how did you go about building those relationships?
2: Uh, Yeah, so I kind of touched on this earlier, but um, I was... I feel like my career has basically been like a series of like women taking a chance on me and being really supportive and amazing. And I'm kind of very grateful for that. So, um, uh, yeah, so when I started writing for The Guardian, um, I basically pitched to Jenny Stevens because she used to write at Vice and I had like a sort of tangential relationship with her there. And she really kind of pulled me in and was like super incredible and really supportive and kind of really championed my work to her higher ups in terms of like making sure people actually read my pictures and stuff like that um I try to uh, another amazing editor that I work with is Vicky Turk at Wired who commissioned the drop shipping piece um and was also like incredibly chill and really nice when I missed my return flight home from Bali (laughs) which was like very very understanding of her because I felt really bad about it um but I um yeah I try to with my relationships with editors make their lives easy um I was an editor when I was at Vice and it's the difference in a, between a freelancer who just like takes a bit more time on edits and does them properly versus a freelancer who like has obviously rushed them or um, a freelancer who um, you it's just always like kind of friendly and polite to work with and like upbeat and like, you know, will try and find solutions rather than telling you that there's a, like a problem. That, that's kind of how I try to be as a freelancer. So like I kind of see my job as making my editor's life as easy as possible. And so the ideal situation for me is that like they commission me on an idea, I write it and then there's like no edits and they can just go on with the rest of their day and they can just like, you know, focus on all the other work that they need to do. Like that's kind of how I see my role is to make their job as easy as possible.
1: How do you find the, difference in rhythm between these longer pieces you're doing like that barley shipping piece or the dyslexia long read that you sent as well and these more kind of turnaround features do you have a do you have a distinct workflow for for those longer projects or do you do you tend to approach it in the same way
2: um I know so I it's really hard for me to kind of schedule very far in advance because the nature of my job often means that I'm picking up things quite like short notice um so I I don't really plan my days or my weeks or anything like that um the one thing that I always try to keep uh fixed is that I I try to make sure that the mornings are for writing so um I'll I'll try my very best not to have to do any interviews or answer any emails until the afternoon um I don't always manage to do that but I, I try to just kind of block out like 9 until 12 I mean or if I can get up earlier 8 till 12 as just like pure writing time um which I think a lot of writers do I don't think that's I think that's pretty normal um I I to be honest with you I find it quite hard to balance the longer lead stuff with the shorter stuff um because some I mean I'm working on a long read right now and I did some of the interviews I wrote back in February <laughs> and it's like it's a bit difficult to go back to something from such a long time ago and get yourself back into that headspace so when I was in the dyslexia long read and the um the wired long reads what I really tried to do as much as possible was like block out like weeks at a time to focus on it because then you could get like properly back into that world again as opposed to kind of feeling like it's already very piecemeal and you're kind of just like hopping from one thing to another. So um I kind of I tried really, really hard to get all my other work done as quickly as possible, um, so that I could kind of block out a chunk of time to focus on it. Um and, and that's kind of what I did with both both of those pieces. Um but also the edit process in particular for the the Lon Reed was almost a year. So um, it was okay actually it was actually quite nice coming back to it sometimes because you could see like quite clearly like what you had done wrong in the last round of edits because you had a fresh pair of eyes to look at it and and actually I was quite surprised by that by how much um, my perspective on it had changed with the passage of time
0: when it comes to sort of wrangling all the material that you you know collect during reporting a long read do you use any sort of software um for that or is it i don't know slightly more piecemeal than that
2: Um, so I work in like the exact same way for all my pieces, which is uh like two doodle docs, uh side by side on like a split screen on my computer. Um and like on the left hand side I'm writing, and on the right hand side I have all my notes just dumped into one doodle doc Um and that's pretty much it. I I kind of compulsively back up absolutely everything on um Doodle Drive, like all of my important audio recordings I always upload straight away. Um uh for a long read I don't so I don't plan or structure my pieces in general up unless it's like a long read um where you kind of do it otherwise you're just going to completely lose your way in the forest um but for a long read I'll have like a vague structure and then I might kind of highlight different sections so like section one I'll highlight the relevant quotes that I want to use in like purple section two I I'll highlight them in like orange um but honestly I don't even do that that much I'm quite I'm quite bad at that um and i'm also like one of those really i have this weird way of writing which is i write i write in like tiny bursts <laughs> i'll like, write like a paragraph at a time <laughs> and then like honestly just like browse twitter i'm not very good at just like focusing for a prolonged period of time i wish i was but i've never been that great at it um and yeah there's, there's really I, i've seen I, sometimes i read articles about like magazine writers I read interviews with magazine writers and they talked about how they've like planned every single paragraph in a piece (laughs) and they know like exactly where everything goes and that fills me with like complete dread um I definitely would never be able to do that I think for me personally that would kind of lose quite a lot of the creative flow I quite like just sitting down to write and seeing like where your thoughts take you and then I'll edit it into a structure that makes sense afterwards if need be.
1: It's interesting because we have this perennial question with novelists that we have on the show as to whether they are plotters or plungers, whether they, uh, you know, have this sort of big outline on the wall and then go in or just, just dive and follow. And I, my, my experience is like, I think for, for nonfiction, it's a slightly different game, but I'd certainly agree with you that you do want to have space for serendipity and for kind of it to take its own way. I'd be interested to know at what stage in that process are you bringing in a discussion with your editor like when you have this sort of rough outline would you discuss that with your editor or what's the first thing you would file like would it be an outline would be a rough first draft or would you try and hit file something quite clean
2: um so for a long for a long read I would I would like talk about the structure with an editor first definitely um but for a regular feature like a 2000 2500 word feature for the guardian like no I just file I just file my first draft and that's like you know, if they want to change the structure around afterwards, they'll do that. But um, I won't plan that or anything like that. Um, one of the things that I really like about The Guardian in terms of the commissioning is that it's very light touch. Um, they barely give you anything more than a few sentences to go on. And I really like that because it means you can kind of uh, you can kind of shape the piece like how you want to write it as opposed to like a very narrow conception of like what your editor wants it to be um but yeah for for like a long read like for the drop piece or the dyslexia piece like we like very heavily especially the dyslexia piece we very heavily workshopped um my editor david wolf and i uh like what was the best structure for this piece how should it work like how sh- how should we like fit all this information together and it was um i mean his editing like significantly <laughs> improved that piece i think I made one of the mistakes I think a lot of people tend to make when they're writing like laundries which is like over-researching so then you've suddenly got this google document with like a hundred thousand words worth of notes in it and there's absolutely no way you can possibly condense that into a five thousand word long read and so he was really good at kind of just like casting a sort of very critical eye over all of my material and being like this is important this isn't important you don't need this you need this. In terms of your um interviewing style as well when you're um
0: reporting pieces do you write an outline and Um, sort of plan where you want the interview to go or do you have a slightly more serendipitous approach you know wing it a bit more
2: on the day? Um, I basically never plan any of my interviews (laughs) I feel like I'm just sounding like such a chance here Um, I yeah I don't I don't plan any of my interviews um, unless it's like a very technical interview so um, for my dyslexia piece um, when I was interviewing the British Dyslexia Association I knew that I um like wanted to ask them really specific questions about policy so I I made sure that I wrote them all down in a notebook so that I wouldn't forget any of them um but in terms of no for all my other interviews um I don't plan my interviews um the only exception actually is the occasional celebrity profile because sometimes it's actually really important that you hit certain marks for your editor because they have quotes or lines that they want to pull so you need to make sure that you definitely ask them all of those things because you know like I interviewed um, the Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin for Vogue earlier in the year and I knew that I knew then that I really needed to prep that because she's a prime minister, so she only has 45 minutes to give me. And I also knew that it was very important that I covered all the bases that my editor, um, at Vogue had asked me to cover. Um, so I prepped that, but I mean, in general, no, I don't. Um, and that's never really been much of a problem. I'm, I'm quite a big believer in like, just like chatting to people for as long as they want to chat. Um, and I mean, I, I did the series for the Guardian called loss of the virus earlier this year, which was kind of profiles of, um, people who died of coronavirus but they were four thousand words long each one so they were really long um and my kind of strategy with those interviews because I knew that I really wanted to kind of get the family members to kind of tell me the true person as opposed to sort of the generic like he was a great dad that you get in most kind of reporting of people who died um was just by talking to them for like a really long time and over a period of time as well, I found it's really useful. So, most people are quite nervous about doing interviews with journalists and they've, and they've not really ever done that before. So, I would kind of re interview them over like the period of like a week or two weeks or three weeks, however long it took. Um, because by the th- sort of third or fourth time you've spoken to someone on the phone, you kind of feel like you know that person and you have a relationship with them and you're much more willing to kind of chat to them and open up. Um, and so that for me was kind of my strategy. But yeah, in general, I don't plan my interviews and <laughs> I often forget to ask people stuff and call them back, <laughs> which is probably sounds incredibly unprofessional. But yeah, I do it all the time. Um, but I, I find that just having a conversation with people is better than just asking list of questions.
1: Sure. And I wanted to ask about um, transcription software. I've certainly found I've been using it for maybe a year and a half or so. And I found it's very helpful with my workflow and something of a game changer is that something you use or what's your experience with that um
2: i don't use it i've only ever really used it say uh i i I think otter's the one that everyone tends to use isn't it i only ever really use it if for example um like i've i've done like an hour or two long two hour, a two hour long interview with someone and i know that there's like one specific bit that i need to find um and, and the rest I don't really need so much. And then I'll just run it through transcription software so that I can pull out that bit. And then I'll just check it, check that it's transcribed it accurately. But um, no, I don't. So actually, most of my interviews I transcribe as I'm interviewing, which um, is kind of like changed my life. when I realized that I could type quite fast and do that. So, so um, I used to spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours transcribing interviews. And then someone said to me, have you thought about just doing it when you're on the phone to them? I was like, oh, I like can't believe I didn't think of doing that before. <laughs> um, so if it's like a, ju-
1: are, you, are you recording at the same time so you have something to go back to, or do you just just type as you call?
2: Um, if it's if it's any sort of interview that might be slightly contentious, so like any sort of interview where I think that there's a possibility they might sue me, any sort of interview where like it's really important that I get it like 100 accurate, any sort of interview where it's like very big and important piece, um, then yeah, I record it as well um, with my like beloved in ear mic but if it's like a hey can you write like a 400 word shortcut column for the guardian this afternoon then no I don't because I kind of trust myself to type it type it accurately um but yeah if it's like a if it's kind of like a proper feature or um like a profile of someone or someone that I something that I know like is a kind of big important feature and it's not just getting a few lines from an expert to kind of slot into a 600 word piece then yeah I, I will record it um and then just go back and just double check that I didn't write anything down wrong um but I mean I'm I'm pretty fast actually, which is like I'm pretty proud of how fast I can type. Um and yeah, that's that was really quite revolutionary because I was trans I was hand transcribing all of my um interviews before I started doing that. And also when I was at Vice, I used to have to pay people to do most of my transcriptions for me because I honestly just did not have the hours in the day to do it. So I was paying people basically to transcribe interviews that I was then kind of writing up as freelance um articles on the side and obviously that's quite expensive
0: um you mentioned your loss of the virus series which i um really enjoyed how did that come about was that an editor at the guardian commissioned you to do that
2: yeah so my editor at uh, kira asked me to do that um which i was very kind of um appreciative that she asked me to do it because it was like a big series and it was like a kind of high profile um kind of like team effort from the gt desk so i was very kind of um flattered that they thought that i'd be good enough to do it um and yeah it was the whole process probably took about three months um I spent quite a lot of time really carefully thinking about who I wanted to profile in the series um so the, the it was meant to, it was originally meant to be a series of about five profiles of people who died of covid nineteen in in a lot of kind of length and depth um but then we ended up extending it to seven um and I'm actually working on like a kind of follow up to it at the moment um and I I felt like it was really, really important with that to actually just like nail down exactly who I was profiling um, because I, I kind of as soon as I got the permission, I kind of thought to myself, I don't want this to just be a series of profiles of people who died it has to kind of represent something a bit bigger than the individual. So like, it has to represent how the individual intercepted with the events that led to their death. So you like, what were the failures that happened that might have contributed to their death? So, you know, I knew that one person had to like have been in a care home. So I wanted to kind of talk about the care home crisis. Um, And I wanted someone, I wanted someone who was black or from a minority ethnic community because they, those people have died in disproportionate numbers. Um, So I spent quite a lot of time, like really carefully thinking about who to profile. And then, um, And then, yeah, just like basically spent three months interviewing the families of people who had died of COVID, which um, was quite emotionally draining. Um, But it was actually it was actually like a a good experience in a way as well, actually, because it it was really amazing to be given the space to honour their memories and also to really kind of stick it to the government as well. <laughs> I'm really angry about how this pandemic's been handled and like having 4,000 words to illustrate the precise nature of the care home crisis in a national newspaper is really, really great if, like me, you feel incredibly annoyed at how the Tories have handled this whole thing.
1: Can I ask a, a question which is kind of runs through the pieces you said, which is, which is about tone? And I think what I found... Very impressive, both with the, particularly with the barley piece and also the dyslexia one, but I think it touches on the, on your, your COVID coverage as well, is this idea of tone. And I thought, particularly with that barley piece, that you, you walked this quite adroit line between, it's sort of rye, but it's not, you know, you clearly these people are, are in a, World of their own, doing some pretty weird stuff, but it's sort of wry, but the snark is kind of moderated. And I thought with this lecture, it's like as you say, this is a total hot button topic on which emotions run very strong. And and I, I certainly came away from that piece thinking like God, there are a lot of like peop- like sharp elbow middle class people really you know really taking advantage of this. But at the same time, I thought the story was very measured in the way it read. And I'm wondering how are you conscious of of this kind of way you're handling? tone which I thought you did very well but just be interested in how what your approach is to that
2: yeah um I think that's a really good question and it's one that I'm probably still trying to figure out myself um so I what I want more than anything with all of my pieces is to see issues in totality and, and not to be um I don't ever want to punch down at anyone I don't ever want to be cruel or judgmental I always want to be empathetic to everybody being surveyed and I want to truly try and understand their point of view and their perspective um and I think also kind of just be uh, not kind because I, I do think that you sometimes you do need to just call out behavior for what it is but never unnecessarily cruel and never unnecessarily um cynical, I don't want to reflect a worldview that is particularly bitter or jaded, but I also don't want to sugarcoat things and make out like everything's fine. I kind of want to be honest, but give people the benefit of the doubt, but also be willing to point to something when it's obviously egregious and wrong, um, which is different. It's a really difficult line to walk. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the Bali piece, the dropshipping piece, I mean, I didn't really see much out there that I particularly liked about the scene and about the culture and the community. Um, and I think that comes across in the piece but I also think it's better to not lay things on too thick Um, I think just a few observations might be able to kind of illustrate a wider tone and a wider theme I think um, the sort of best writing is sort of the most spare writing and that's something I definitely learned at university which is like I studied English literature and just like take just take it all out just take out as much as you possibly can and then when you think you've taken it all out like take out some more Um, and I think that same thing applies to sort of I'm never gonna be the sort of person who's gonna be like sort of amazingly biting observations of people, you know, that that's not my writing style. But um try try trying to keep it fair, but also not to be super saccharine about things, I think is my is my tone. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're sort
0: of coming towards the end of our time, I wondered if we could talk about your career in general. I mean, you've covered covered an enormous variety of subjects. Is there do you think you have a sort of unifying theme?
2: Um Honestly, no. <laughs> uh, I I used to kind of wrestle with this a bit earlier in my career that I don't have a beat, um, and I used to think, oh, I should have a beat. Like I should write about, you know, I don't know, gentrification or health or something like that. But um, I think my if I if I was to try and put my finger on it, I, I like people who are kind of around the fringes of society. I like I like eccentrics. I like people who are a bit odd. Um, i can sort of I, I really like trying to sort of like communicate their worldview with as much sort of humanity and compassion and humor as possible like i, I really like pieces that allow me to be a bit humorous but i actually think that writing writing funny and writing lightly is probably the hardest sort of writing you can do um but no i think i think my just anyone is interesting anything that anything that's a little bit odd and, and also anything that's an obvious injustice or something that is obviously wrong i mean that's why i wanted to communicate with the dyslexia piece, is that, the system is not working and, and that we need to take a long cold look at it so I, I think that's probably a very bad answer to your question which is basically like anything <laughs> anything <laughs> anything I find interesting is what I want to write about. As good a unifying theme as any.
1: <laughs> yeah we, we're kind of, so got, we've we're got a few minutes I'm actually just really interested on the whole issue of, of the degree and the kind of literature degree and that we all you know three of us on the show you know Rachel and I and yourself we all did the same English degree I think at Oxford and I often think quite a lot in retrospect about what I drew from that and what I didn't. And I think, you know, in terms of writing and in terms of actually the construction of prose. And I think the the exposure to the canon that that kind of writing repeatedly on deadline and so forth, I drew an enormous amount of that. But I often think it fascinating in retrospect that I can't ever remember being taught about like characterization or pace or stuff like that. You know, this which which, you know, when we talk particularly to novelists and to screenwriters, this is kind of the you know, this is the sort of meat and meat and veg of what they're doing. You know, these constituent parts of storytelling, and I think also particularly in in nonfiction writing and in, in the kind of longer pieces that you sent us. You know, those those forms of storytelling are so key. And I wonder your thoughts on like, do you feel you were taught that stuff while formally studying literature, or is that something that that you acquired differently, or is innate, or you know the, the interplay I suppose between the academic study of literature and your job as a writer.
2: Um. I think that I I was always one of those kids that was like hyper bookish. Like I just basically used to just like lock myself in my bedroom and read. And I think you do kind of internalise like good prose and clean prose and all of those things from from reading. Um but I think that if I was to talk about what my degree taught me in terms of how to write well, um, it would be two things. I think the first thing would be strike out boldly. So when you do like A-level English you're always taught to like argue both sides of anything right and then and then when I, what I kind of learn at Oxford um, in terms of like actually writing a good essay that's going to do you well in exams is to take a position and kind of be confident in it Um and I think that is also the key to good feature writing which is like don't be afraid to kind of take a stance don't be afraid to sort of like set things up pretty quickly with like your lead character like pick the thing that you think is the most interesting don't I've always been kind of very much about details in my writing so I think that me personally and most people I think are fascinated by the sort of minutiae of people's lives and little details actually really kind of hook you and I think that's something that I probably learned actually from studying English literature which is like just just talk about like the one really small thing that you find interesting about Milton's prose don't talk about like the whole big meta level analysis of it because like that's been done and you're not gonna do it very well um, and that's probably the same with feature writing, although it sounds very pretentious to compare the two things. um like just just like pick up the the small things that are interesting because actually those things are the things that people remember. And then I think the other thing that it taught me, what I really liked about my degree actually is that my tutors I, th- I think and the whole the whole thing actually was very unpretentious. so I never felt like I couldn't say, um oh, I don't I don't like this, I don't like this author. I, I felt like actually, it was completely okay to go into a tutorial and say, yeah, I don't enjoy this. I don't think Elizabeth Gaskell is very good. I don't know why I just picked that. I actually think she's great. But I've never liked Dickens, for example. And I never had any, <laughs> I never had any problems saying that to a tutor because I, I, they actually kind of, I think a good tutor and a good lecturer should kind of make you think that actually you can critique the canon and it's okay to not like stuff and you don't have to be pretentious and pretend that you like the fairy queen when you don't, which I didn't. No
1: one, no one, no one likes the fairy queen.
2: <laughs> I know, it's awful. Um, And I think actually that also applies to my journalism which is that I'm completely okay to like write about stuff that people think is uncool I'm completely okay to be seen as you know like I don't I don't write about Chinese trade tariffs to the economists and I'm completely fine with that I think that the things that I write about are just as important um and that kind of, <laughs> yeah and I think actually that kind of lack of pretentiousness I think the worst type of writing and the worst type of journalism is like pretentious I mean I think that's like basically the worst thing you can do is write like really pretentious turgid prose and so um I think it taught me not to be pretentious as well. And also, obviously, all the stuff that everyone says about, you know, like George Orwell and how to write and make it clean and short words are always best, all that stuff. Um, But I think it's more like a kind of a confidence, um, perhaps more than anything. Um,
0: Just for a quick final note, what would you like to do next?
2: Um, I'm going to respectfully duck that question because I've never really planned anything in my career and I, I kind of there's this i'm half turkish and there's this kind of cultural tradition in in, in turkey and cyprus which is where my mom is from um and it's it's called the evil eye and it's basically like you kind of don't jinx the future by trying to control things too much or like planning things too much and so i kind of really internalize that from her so um yeah i basically never say what i want to do in the future or even really think about it i kind of just see where things take me and so far i expect that okay for me so i'm not i'm not doing any sort of three or five or 10 year plans
1: well, look, Sharon. Thank you for being such a fantastic guest on um, on Always Take Notes. It's um, yeah, it was certainly really really interesting to me to, to dig into the minutiae of, of your feature writing process and and those excellent pieces you sent over. And wishing you all the best with your uh, totally unplanned feature.
2: Thank you very much. It was really lovely to uh, meet you both.
0: Hello, it's us again, Simon. What were your takeaways from the interview with Sharon?
1: I really enjoyed talking to Sharon. Um, she's had a, a blazing year in twenty twenty with her coverage of the pandemic in the Guardian, and then this um, this series of really excellent long reads. I think what struck me reading her stuff before the interview was I felt that she she's a re- she combined like very impressive reporting, but there's a real kind of sparkle and to her prose, like you know that has as a stylist. I think she's very accomplished, and it was good to good to talk to her about that. Um, I am also fascinated to hear where you know her take on the sort of vice journey that we heard a bit about from Phoebe as well. Um, and, you know, always good to ask really geeky questions about features writing, not for the first time. Um, what about you, Rachel?
0: <laughs> yes. The, the age old questions of transcription and <laughs> and other elements. Yeah. I love talking to Sharon. I thought this, she was very entertaining to chat to as well, as well as read. Um, and I think her loss to the virus, series is very empathetically and sensitively reported and it's unfortunate that she's had to bring it back um but I have enjoyed reading them um and I think she's really done those people justice
1: um it will be interesting to see what she does next um Rachel what have you been up to yourself otherwise
0: um lockdown 3.0 not a lot (laughs) my usual thing of watching lots of tv and reading and yeah how about you
1: um, that's that. That's your course. You mean watching lots of TV and reading?
0: It's all sort of work and fun blends into one now.
1: <laughs> it sounds like you, you need some professional boundaries. Um, I have also been been working, working. So I just uh, pretty much closed my big piece for Runner's World, which is good. And I'm trying now to negotiate um, hospital access for um, another 1843 story, which is. Which is good. I've spent a lot of time on the phone with hospital press offices in the last year. Um, something I'm definitely getting better at, but it's not. It's not. Um. It's not the easiest thing to do. So that's that's been what I've been up to. And I'm also, I think, like many another freelancer, I'm doing my taxes. In fact, I I mistakenly messaged the podcast team about how I should categorise one set of receipts <laughs> today, which I apologize. took you quite a
0: while, took you quite a while to realise that you'd sent it to us.
1: <laughs> well I didn't I, I didn't realise for hours and I was like I was like why hasn't my accountant got back to me on how I should um should categorize what were they in particular I was asking to categorize? I can't even remember. I can't
0: remember now. It was some some expense. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I can't remember.
1: <laughs> anyway, um, I'm glad you got um, that sorted out. Yeah, so I have I have a very patient accountant. So yeah, that's that's been what we've been up to. Um, anyway, this has been uh, always take notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikman,
0: and me, Rachel Lloyd.
1: Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If
0: you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on the crowdfunding site Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us, please do.
1: Many thanks. Goodbye.